You're listening to Dedication Point, a podcast and speaker series produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. Season three of Dedication Point is focused on prey species in the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. As I'm sure most of our listeners know, this national conservation area was established in large part to protect the area's uniquely dense population of raptors. But these raptors can't survive without adequate numbers of prey animals. So understanding how prey populations are adapting to changing landscapes in the national conservation area is of crucial importance. In our first episode of the season, we talked about Paiute ground squirrels, a keystone species of this ecosystem. In this episode, we'll be talking about jackrabbits and how improved survey methods designed to assess their populations in the NCA hold the potential to benefit wildlife survey efforts all across the globe. My name is Jane Kurtz, and I'm an assistant professor at Boise State University. I come from a lot of places. Uh, <laughs> so originally Colombian, via Australia and New Zealand and Wisconsin to end up in Boise. I have worked in conservation and wildlife uh, since Australia for a long time. And so I think I like to think of myself as a world person that cares about the environment and conservation, not just in the, in the US, but also just everywhere. Um, and I'm big on empowering students and trying to give them the tools so that they can go on to be successful professionals. I'm Leticia Camacho. I am an Idaho native. Um, I haven't traveled the world as much as Jen has, but um, I'm really have been and continue to be in love with the Sage Step. Um, I have like a long family history of being obsessed with nature, kind of. My I have a single um, family home. My mother raised me by herself. Um, she's a teacher that teaches math and science, and always loved art, and so that's what my world was filled with, also with nature. Um, she got really lucky to get adopted into a very nice family in Boise when she was a baby that also was very nature driven. Um, they, like for example, my great grandma used to take like every year annual journals of all of the animals that would come across them, all the birds that came to her feeder up in the foothills in Boise. And eventually my grandparents donated all of that land behind Camel's Back um, that was later turned into the Nature Learning Center up there. Um, so long ties to the Sage Step, Boise, and really just being obsessed with art and science, really. <laughs> Awesome. That's super cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, I don't really talk about it that much, honestly, but I always think about it up there. It's like my mom would take me out there in the middle of whatever season and we would just like paint and draw on like leaves or, you know, like climb trees and all that stuff. So it's like young age breeding me to be an ecologist for sure. Awesome. I mean, can you take us from that point? Like, and I'm sure that as you said, like provided some inspiration and like, you know, uh, to a degree led you to the path that you're on now. Like, how did you 
get from that point to like your specific interest that led to this graduate project? Yeah, great question. Um, so I was always um, influenced to go to college for sure, especially like coming from a more Latina family background. Um, you kind of are pushed to get a degree, whatever it is. Um, I had some ideas of like becoming um, some other things to begin with that were all art based, but knowing my mom, she was like, get a degree. So I combined my love for the environment into working towards getting my undergraduate. Um, and that's kind of a whole long story, but um, it started with really just finding what I nerded out about. Like when I go out in nature and I'm just like looking at lichens or rocks and stuff, like I am at total peace and I'm my nerdy zone. So that's what I just followed really. And I started at CWI. College Western Idaho locally. It's small community college, and I had some amazing teachers like Dusty Perkins, and that just inspired me, you know, to become as great as I could be and be out in nature as much as possible. I also was um, starting CWI at a time where people were getting out of college and had degrees and didn't know what to do with them or couldn't get jobs and stuff. So I was really worried about that and wanted to apply myself to any opportunity I had to be in research. So by the end of my undergraduate, I uh, ended up being a part of, I think, like a ridiculous amount of research project, like 11 different internships by the time I had my bachelor's degree, ranging from like water quality stuff or agricultural run it inputs um, to Lake Lowell is where it started at. Soil compositions, that kind of stuff. I realized that I love water, of course, but I don't know if I wanna study soils all the time. I want something I can chase, I can like learn more about kind of. So then I moved to um, monarchs and butterfly mapping across the Treasure Valley of where they were at because their populations were not doing so great. So we wanted to know with Dusty Perkins where they were at, how well they were doing in breeding. We ended up doing like a captive rearing program too. So that was really awesome. But then I got into raptors. So raptors have been my muse for a very long time. Not forever now. I'm not in the um, raptor research project or um, master's degree program, but I've always been obsessed with these predators of the sky. You know, they are just so beautiful and so just amazing to watch, I guess. And so for a long time, I worked at the Peregrine Fund. I worked with um, USGS for internships, doing a lot of bird stuff with Steve, too, sometimes with Ferruginous Hawks. And um, becoming a graduate student, I, before that, was working with the Army National Guard with Zoe um, that I think you guys had on last. I just listened to her yeah. episode. Um, but, um, yeah, so... Knowing I love raptors so much, I started looking at, okay, what are they needing though? What are they interested in? And working at the Idaho National Guard, I had the chance to really look at a lot of projects in the NCA specifically in a short amount of time. You know, they go through a lot of different things from habitat um, to predator-prey interactions through bird surveys, jackrabbit surveys particularly. And I watched how people survey for rabbits and I hadn't had much experience with rabbits before that but just knowing how much I love predator prey interactions I wanted to know more about them and then seeing how they do their survey methodology on the ground I it asked it made me have a lot of questions of how are other people doing this how has it been done before how can we 
potentially improve it. So currently studying jackrabbits, looking at developing these kind of rigorous methodologies that give you a better snapshot of what's actually going on on the ground when you go survey them multiple times in the same time period. Because currently sometimes what will happen is you go out let's say you do a route once a month, right? Depending on the weather conditions or the moon phase even, or the habitat you're in can really influence how many rabbits you see on the road. So when you're surveying for jackrabbits, you just drive in a truck down a dirt road with spotlights on your car and look for eye shine of these rabbits and count them. But you can understand as you're going along this road, there's so many factors that will go into can you detect them or not. So um, like if you're driving through a thick sagebrush area versus an open grassland area, you can be able to pick up on the eye shine 200 meters away in comparison to you can't see three meters off the road in a thick sagebrush. Yeah, so if we're working on um, developing a rigorous spotlight methodology, but also using UAS or drones with thermal imaging cameras on them to see if we can survey for them that way from the actual air instead of being tied to a road. Um, yeah, so that's what we're working on currently. Awesome. And yeah. Um, I wonder if we can go back for a minute and like talk about like the need for this, right? And I mean, one of the things about jackrabbit populations that like I hear a lot about, and I'm sure the two of you have as well, of just anecdotally, basically everybody I talk to who has experience like in the Snake River Plain talks about how jackrabbit populations have crashed. Yeah. Being an Idaho native, I also anecdotally have seen that, right? When you used to drive through the desert, you used to have to swerve to not hit all these jackrabbits that are jumping in front of your truck, same with whistle pigs. But um, noticing that, is awesome but giving actual data that tells you what are the numbers currently what is going on in their population we just don't have when we started um, really producing any publication on jackrabbits in the past it started off as a pest control kind of viewpoint. Um, there was too many of them. In Idaho even there was bunny bashes where people would get together and wrangle up by the hundreds or however many rabbits at one time and just you know take them out because they were wor worried about their crops and all that kind of stuff. So it's drastically changed but now and there has been some research in the past done in Idaho that tried to give a snapshot of um, the populations and what they were eating out there, where they were at, all that kind of stuff. So there is some research on it. Um, with the methodology that was used, it's hard to tell or project out to current times on how they're doing because of the way that it was collected and all that kind of stuff. So we can't do the kind of statistical models that we will be doing with our current methodology development. But we need a baseline understanding, and we don't have that. So. I think uh, it was 70s and 80s, the, the last mm -hmm. uh, attempts to quantify jackrabbits at the NCA. Um, and they did have studies for about five years. I think a lot of that was stopped. Um, and there hasn't been an effort, besides the surveys currently done by the guard, mm -hmm. um, there hasn't been an, an effort to quantify uh, how jackrabbits are going um, since about then. So we're talking about 20 years, 30 year lag. 
In the meantime, though, there have been a lot of threats uh, to jackrabbits um, that may that you know may explain why we are not seeing them anecdotally outside as much as we used to. And so habitat change has always been a big strong thing that we've talked about, but also um, climate change. So jackrabbits do not make their own burrows. And so when you think about small desert species in heating deserts, you can imagine that they might be more stressed to those thermal highs and lows than what they used to be. And so that's also another threat. And then to top it all off, mm -hmm. RHD, rabbit hemorrhagic disease, which was, mm -hmm. it's a virus that was identified recently in North America. And it has been spreading from the South. I think it started in Mexico and it's been spreading all the way North and it reached Idaho last year. Last year. Mm -hmm. wow. And yeah, we have very little knowledge about the virulence of the disease and what species of lagomorphs it affects. In Europe, um, that disease has led to over 90% reduction in population numbers and complete eradication of some of the populations in some areas. And that has then led to community collapses. So they have actually quantified decreases in uh, rabbit populations that led to ongoing decreases of prey, predator populations that relied on them as a main prey source. Um, in Australia, New Zealand, RHD is used as a biocontrol uh, because it is so effective at killing rabbits. The scary thing is thinking about what it, already low numbers, how those are going to respond to these intensifying threats. And so, again, going back to um, what Leticia was saying about her love of raptors, I think a big reason she took on this project was because <laughs> of the concern of what jackrabbit population collapse could then mean for golden eagles. At the moment, efforts and funding only support testing by the labs as to whether a carcass has evidence of disease. Um, and then once it's been identified in a county, that's it. basically they're only mapping spreads of the disease, but they're not collecting any further information. And so for all the different species of lagomorphs, we have no idea as to how deadly it is. Uh, we have no idea whether the reservoirs that uh, are spreading to other more vulnerable species of lagomorphs. Um, we have no idea of the impact that they're having on the populations. And so part of our efforts are really in coming up with these rigorous methods is so we can actually quantify where and where the rabbits are, how many we have, and then have that as a baseline so that we can better monitor impacts of this disease and other threats. That sounds dire. We know that there's already been a, a significant decline in, in jackrabbit populations, right? Like, I know there's been some golden eagle research yeah. that has, like, con been connected to that. 
Yeah, and especially talking to Julie Heath, we, she's on my committee, and we've been talking about incorporating some of her Eagle territories into our new spotlight route so we can intersect some of those, yeah, territories with our survey methods. But also, like, it is been tied in some of her research to nestling and fledgling success of having higher densities or um, proof of jackrabbits in certain territories versus others. So not only is it important though to go to the eagles, which of course I love, so cool, but other predators in the NCA are going to rely on jackrabbits to be there. Yeah, so it was higher delivery rates of jackrabbits led to more successful nests. And it wasn't just the NCA that she looked at. I think it was one of her students uh, that had data for a few locations around the Northwest. And so consistently, yes, having more rabbits seems to make it easier for golden eagles to successfully rear young. I just think about how much food you bring back with one jackrabbit carcass. And if you can consistently deliver tons of big meals, um, your kids are probably gonna be fat and happy. If you have to rely on, especially ground squirrels, think mm -hmm. about a golden eagle and how much energy it takes one of those things to swoop up a tiny little um, potato-sized uh, ground squirrel. That's the voice of Steve Alsip, president of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, who joined me for this conversation. Another thing that I wanna mention that you may not have asked is that, um, we're not the only ones that are doing a bad job at monitoring jackrabbits, rabbits, or hares, lagomorphs in general. It's actually a worldwide problem. Jackrabbits are not easy to measure. Like this is the reason why we've done it um, poorly across the world. Uh, it's it's just they're secretive. They are, you know, like they <laughs> don't they don't go into traps very easily at all. So these capture recapture traditional methods are not effective for jackrabbits and other rabbits. And so um, you know the the spotlight surveys were really designed for very open areas where like you literally can see equally across, you know, endless, basically, as far as I can see, as, as far as the eye can see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but because we don't have better surveys, those, those protocols got taken to a whole bunch of locations where the habitat doesn't allow that to be the case anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's basically because we don't have any better methods yeah. as of yet, nowhere. Um, you'll still see people, so in New Zealand, for example, they uh, go to the top of the hill and then they try and map out on a, on a piece of paper where they see lots of rabbits on a map versus not. Um, because there is, you know, they, they are recognizing that, you know, road differences might be happening um, and that high vintage point might let you try and get to those locations, but how accurate that is. In Europe, they, Besides surveys, they also go out and look for burrows, um, entrances, and try and look for sign of rabbits. Mm -hmm. And that is, again, also problematic because we know not just for, and this, this is talking about rabbits that actually do create burrows, mm -hmm. um, but animals vary the amount of burrows maybe, so we talked about this last episode, yeah. depending on the habitat they're in. And so if you're in an open habitat, uh, you may need more burrows. 
so that you because you you need more cover mm -hmm. and you need more entrance and exit points. Then if you're in a in a thick sagebrush where you actually don't need to create that many burrows, you could just hide under a bush. And so using that metric to try and estimate abundance is really difficult right. as well. So right. it's just, it's, it's been a challenge um, for a long time, um, trying to come up with rigorous ways of estimating these critters. So um, the word lagomorph, um, mm -hmm. we should talk a little bit about what's included in there. So it's uh, rabbits, hares, which jackrabbits are, are hares, hairy, right? Yes. Yeah, we like to confuse things. Yes, so yeah. rabbits, mm -hmm. hares, and is, is it pikes? Well? Mm -hmm. yep. They're in the same family. Mm -hmm. Also known as like leopards too. Awesome. Well, I mean, we've clearly established the need for this research. Bring us into it, right? And I mean, it sounds like the goal is not just local, but global, right? Because there's a global need for like better survey methods. So uh, what was your starting point? Uh, our starting point, I think, was looking at what people had done. Mm. And so, and, and whether we could build on that. And so, as we mentioned, Idaho Guard does go out mm -hmm. um, on, and do spotlight surveys, and we we know we can see spot like we can spotlight for rabbits. So could we think about redesigning those existing protocols to make them a little more rigorous? And so one of the things that we did was uh, well, by we I mean Leticia <laughs> is the one that went out and uh, try to work out her how far she could see mm -hmm. from the road effectively, regardless of habitat type, and you work that out to be? It's five meters, whether it's, I mean, that's on average, going from the deepest sagebrush to like a more sparse area. So it's very complex of a habitat, right? So in some areas you can see farther because there's patches in between versus some it's like thick stands where you can't see very far. So we went out there, measured all around each of our um, roots and how far we could see into and then averaged them out across all habitats. So then we standardized, we're like, okay, we, we realistically cannot see beyond that consistently. So let's narrow it down to that area. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing that we realized was, and we know from previous studies, is that the weather, like Leticia mentioned, mm -hmm. the moon phase, a whole variety of things affect how active rabbits are on a given night. And so the only way that we can then try and get better information on abundance is by going out repeatedly again and again and again and within the same time period right and so we didn't know how many how many times is enough we didn't know is it going to be better at dawn or is it going to be better at dusk and so what we did was go out both times eight times <laughs> and uh collect just very extensive amount of data on all of these things that could be affecting our ability to detect and we definitely have seen really, really wide variation in the day-to-day, -day, even dawn to dusk mm -hmm. counts, re-driving the exact same routes with that five meter restriction just because of everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Leticia's goal for these semesters is 
So I am going to be working on a few things. So one, we're trying to take all this data from our pilot season, right? Of how many times do we need to go out? What is the optimal time to go out? And take all of this data and work them into certain R scripts that can run statistical analysis on what is the optimal survey method. How little many times can we go out to make sure that we're maintaining our resources and keeping money where it should be instead of having to go out eight days, could we go five days in a row? Could we go three days in a row and still account for all the variation? Because on one row, one day, you could see three rabbits. And on that same row, two days later, you could see 50 rabbits and in that it's a crazy variation so understanding all of that then once we understand what is the optimal protocol then we can full-fledge that into our next season come August and the following March and actually see then what can we can pull from that understanding habitat association so that's my next goal is to then overlay all of the jackrabbit data that we have with the different habitat types that are out there and the Guard, luckily, has flown drones out there and done extensive habitat mapping of the whole NCA, almost, or the part that we will be in, at least. And um, so I'm going to use that to overlay with our points and see where they're most active. What habitats are they staying away from or what areas are they staying away from versus where are they consistently at? We have this three measures of habitat at the point counts validation that um, Leticia talks about where she actually went out and looked at vegetation maps and then said, do they match on the ground versus where it says on the map? The second one was the Idaho Guards funded drone mapping at one meter resolution into broad habitat categories, but um, more, way more descriptive than the third vegetation type that we have, which is from satellites. Mm -hmm. So we have satellites that um, you know, go around the entire world and they take photos at different resolutions. Uh, and then from that, we obtain broad categories of vegetation. And here for the Northwest, we also have those validated extensively and recategorized to proportions of our main broad habitats. And so if that is sagebrush, all of the species combined other shrubs, everything else, uh, perennials, and then annuals. And annuals include a lot of the plants that are invasive to this area. And so I think what Leticia was referring to was making, uh, can we uh, match where rabbits are going to these habitats at these levels? Um, and is that helpful for being able to then expand outside of the NCA and starting to think about distributional mapping. So we talked about how historically there have been significant uh, population declines. And I guess like is part of the idea to like understand why? Right, right. And yes, so matching it to habitat and that would allow us then to take the next step and then link it to changes in habitat, which the satellite data actually gives us information on. So the nice thing about that habitat data is that it's been collected annually for 30 years. And so we have these really good metrics of change, 
but there are really core scales. Yeah. And so are those core scales enough for us to then look at that change um, is the question that we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Or do we actually, is it, is it all shrubs that matter or is it specifically types of other non-sagebrush shrubs right. that really link to where the rabbits are? And so if so, then we're gonna have to think through a little more carefully as to how we're gonna make those um, studies looking at the clients and what may have driven those. But the other thing that we do have is um, climate. And so weather changes for this whole time. And so at least on that level, um, that is something that we could also look at. And what we don't have yet, but we should start to think about is disease. Um, and so going back to RHD. To be able to work out the impact of disease, there's a, there's a coupling of information on the disease itself and its spread, but there's also information required on, on the population. And so, uh, and then the combined of those, so, so like is the population already breeding at uh, equilibrium numbers or not, how many are individuals are there even, and how much are they coming into contact with each other? So are there, is it areas of hotspots where basically you have a lot of rabbits mingling together? Um, or is it lower abundances of really spread out rabbits? And if you're trying to imagine those two scenarios, you can already see that the disease spread from what we have learned about COVID is going to be very different. Mm -hmm. And so hotspots are going to be more susceptible to disease um, because they're just spreading right. super easily versus those lower densities that may be able to um, not come into contact with each other fast enough so that the disease actually dies out. Right. And so like having a good understanding of where and how many rabbits you have really allows us to then start to think about how we're gonna understand disease spread uh, or estimate how that might be able to spread. And then you need way beyond like, you know, data that we're not even talking about, which is the, if you contract the disease, how likely are you to die from it? if you're a rabbit, uh, or are you gonna get almost vaccine light resistance uh, that you are gonna then be able to maybe even pass that on to your offspring. And so all of those processes are gonna help us determine the likelihood of impact mm -hmm. of that disease to that population. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that we don't know is how all of these processes change from different species in North America. Right. We have only studied these in Europe, in Australia, in New Zealand, but we haven't really looked at how it affects, in detail, how it affects different species. And so when you start to think about jackrabbits cohabiting with pygmy rabbits in other locations, you mm -hmm. can imagine that if jackrabbits are really good spreaders, of disease and that they are able to actually spread it to pygmy rabbits, then that's a big, big, right. scary thing. It's just, it's, it's interesting that 
and I mean, obviously, I, I realize we don't know the answers to this, um, but it seems like there potentially the fact that there's fewer jackrabbits now than there were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, like could benefit the population. It, it may be slowing down the disease spread. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, but like I said, I don't know if there, so we know there are less, but we don't know the distribution of that. Right. We don't know if there's less because they're like concentrated in a hot spot right. and we're seeing them less because they've kind of gone down from the rest of the habitats where they used to also occur, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to being uniformly spread out thinly. Right. So the other sort of goal of this research that you talked about was like creating, like coming up with um, better survey methods that can then be applied globally, right? Um, I, like, what does that look like, right? Because I mean, you, you talked about the process that you went through to sort of refine those survey or improve those survey methods. Like, would you just be sharing that process with other researchers? I mean, Cause it's gonna be, I, I imagine it's different for every, like the numbers you came up with are only relevant to like the NCA, right? Or like the local area? Yeah. We've talked about spotlights a lot. Um, and Leticia brought up drones early on. Uh, and we haven't talked that much about drones, uh, but we are also testing that out as a new method. Um, and so drones have been used um, in the past to try and estimate or like find individuals and come up with abundance estimates. But it's usually for things that are big and easy to see like whales um, or, or wolves or deer that you can literally fly the drone and like see them like big obvious uh, blobs in the landscape and people haven't really tested these for really tiny little things like jackrabbits mm -hmm. um, and so ideally we're hoping that maybe that could be a method that might be suitable for different types of lagomorphs that are not near roads because the spotlights are very restrictive to where you can go and it also allows us to validate whether we're having road effects that we haven't even like thought about right. when we're coming up with our estimates. So we're also trying to, um, so we're trying to come up with these two methods as well as trying to think whether there is value in combining mm -hmm. methods that provide re different resolution to data. And so you think about spotlights being something that it's very landscape scale, but not as accurate mm -hmm. with high resolution drones that are gonna be localized, but really high accuracy. Is the combination of both methods an effective way of getting your cake and eating it too. Can you make the best out of both by combining them? And I think that that extends even beyond lagomorphs, but just thinking about how we survey animals all together. Um, and so we're thinking about that, not just for rabbits, but we're thinking about different combinations of these approaches, uh, also with squirrels. And, and so I think that what we're hoping is not just refine the methods for using to, for our species, but also refine the thinking into what steps you need to take to come up with these types of protocols right. and the value of combining different things in ways that we haven't thought about before. And so um, the other final thing is that, you know, we have long-term data. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And so you can think about all these surveys that have occurred in maybe not the most fancy approach, not without drones, but they've been occurring for 20, 30 years. You don't want to throw that out, but you don't want to not ever change what you're doing either as new, better approaches come into use. Um, and so part of what we're doing is also thinking about, hey, you can actually combine historical data and continue those and then supplement it with higher resolution stuff to, to come up with even better answers to what you may have done before. Right, so you could improve the insight that comes from historic data, potentially. I'm saying there's value in embracing historical methods, but coupling those with novel approaches. It's not a replacement, it's an integration mm -hmm. to come up with better inference, and that can be applied way beyond jackrabbits. Um, but doing the hard work of like how you go about thinking through that process and then testing it mm -hmm. and, and then validating it, I think that's the step that we're trying to take with jackrabbits mm -hmm. and then with ground squirrels, and then hopefully then that can be something that people can replicate with their own systems, like you said, because right. it's all going to be fine-tuned. It's really cool to me that like this research is happening here, like in the NCA, because it is it has the potential to be really important all over the world, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, this is like a huge, really important global study, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, is it? Is, is anybody else like in the world doing stuff? Like, are there other folks that are examining similar issues? We should mention Donna Delpart. Yeah. yeah, working with Donna Delpart, she is an amazing um, resource when it comes to drone flying. So she's done so much research on being able to detect so many things across the landscape. But um, I'm not sure worldwide on what's going on with other people trying to innovate stuff. But really, it just started with seeing a need and filling a need, right? Like seeing a jackrabbit survey and being like, huh, I wonder if this could be done better and then or different, I guess I should should say, um, and really trying to fix something going forward. Yeah, I, I have, this is not my first time thinking about rabbits and spotlight transects. Mm -hmm. So I did also look at that in New Zealand a little bit. So people in New Zealand definitely have shifted towards at least doing replicate surveys. So they do go out and drive um, and try and go out three times. Um, at least to try and come up with estimates for abundance mm -hmm. rather than just like a single, because they acknowledge that day-to-day -day variability. Mm -hmm. um, and then they thought about those mappings from the top of the hill that I told you about. In, um, and in Europe, like I said, they, they were thinking about using borough entrances. And mm -hmm. so people are thinking about how to do it. I don't think that anybody's necessarily thinking on the same exact lines. Uh, in terms of combining different methodologies. That's starting um, a little bit in ecology to become more uh, popular. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, for example, are also thinking about, and not the first ones, combining when for owls, uh, owl surveys, combining callback surveys, and that's when you elicit the call and you have a broadcaster mm -hmm. callback that elicits the call from the owl versus putting out sound recorders and then having that um, passively record calls. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, again, is two different 
methods um, that we're thinking about using for combined for estimating our distribution down in Texas. And we're not the first ones that are thinking about combining different methods. Um, so yes, definitely uh, for marine wildlife, they've also thought about combining um, boat surveys with uh, radio tracking data that tell you about the movements. Um, we've also thought about um, in other places, it's been people using cameras and then supplementing that with walking surveys. Um, what else? Yeah, people, people have been thinking about like, hey, let's integrate and let's combine mm -hmm. and then try and see if we can then strengthen inference based on this combination of methods rather than like thinking about a single thing. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned Donna Delpart. She's been working with Dr. Heath, Julie Heath, who we've talked to, uh, and, and doing some, they're looking at 3D modeling the canyon with drones, but they're also, you know, while they're flying the canyon, they're seeing if those thermal cameras can pick up nestlings, mm -hmm. or even if the drone can distinguish like a stick nest, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a just pile of talus or, or crumbled cliff. So like, can, can that drone find a stick nest versus, um, you know, some other debris? or tumbleweed, for example, that's blown and gotten right. caught. So in our own little part of the world, so the jackrabbit stuff uh, on the bench and then uh, potentially golden eagle stuff and even prairie falcon survey could be enhanced with drone work too. So we could send field crews down to scan the cliffs like we've done for years and years, but um, also have drone surveys looking for thermal images uh, to see if they're detecting similar, different, mm -hmm. um, just the same or whatever. So yeah. I mean, and the other thing that Donna is doing uh, is counting individual sagebrush seedlings. Yeah. And so with Trevor's lab, uh, and so then that's thinking about, hey, we can, we've talked about satellite imagery and drone flying to map vegetation. This is going one step further mm -hmm. and thinking about, oh, can we actually get individual plants? And if we do that year to year or through the season, we can even start to think about demography of these plants. You know, how long does it take for sagebrush to recover onto burnt areas when you start to model spread mm -hmm. and number of reproductive seedlings that make it to the next stage, right. which is right. cool too. And so you mentioned Trevor and pointed next door. So that's, <laughs> that's Trevor Coughlin yes. uh, with Boise State. One random thought I had is we were talking about rabbit hemorrhagic disease and, and how our golden eagles are lucky that they could switch to different prey. And I started thinking about like, well, if I was a golden eagle and someone said, you can't have any more jackrabbits, what do you pick? I, the next thing I think was marmots, right? The next biggest chunk of food. Uh, and I wonder like marmots aren't lagomorphs, but I wonder if there's any potential of crossover of a disease like that, um, that would infect two prey species. Right, and um, I think, yeah, I haven't mentioned that at all, cross species um, outside of the lagomorphs for rabbit hemorrhagic disease. And the answer, Leticia no, shaking right? her yes. head. It's no, it's, yeah. no the, it's, it's, this is why it was used as biocontrol in Australia and in New Zealand. It is so specific to lagomorphs only um, that it, it was, Released. Good <laughs> <laughs> right, so we're not thinking about ecosystem collapse as a result of this disease because it's spreading and jumping um, to other species. We're thinking about ecosystem collapse because lagomorphs 
including jackrabbits, are such important prey to a whole bunch of species in these locations. But I'm honestly not sure if a diseased rabbit, say it has RHD, would have any negative impact on an eagle trying to eat it. Right. Other yeah. than maybe body condition. We don't know how like a more, how like jackrabbits die, but the European rabbits die uh, very fast after they contract disease and they bleed out like from the eyes. And yeah. um, I, I yeah. think if they, if they don't die inside the burrow uh, and they die like on the ground, then they can be taken by predators really easily. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no evidence that it provides negative um, impacts to the birds, except that they, the population collapses. Yeah. And so it's a very short term mm -hmm. resource at that point and then it goes away. The two of you are like at this moment where you're studying the species that could potentially be on the brink of collapse. And there's so much that's unknown about it. And I mean, that's not a super uncommon thing in the world of conservation mm -hmm. biology, right? What does that feel like? So it's kind of funny when I explain to my friends that are not in school, not studying ecology, and I try to explain to them what it's like to be an ecology student or biology student when you're learning about, you have this best friend that is your natural environment around you, right? And you're kind of going through these stages of grief as you learn about it, right? You have like all of this anger at first of like, why isn't anybody doing anything? And I'm only one person, what am I supposed to do? But then eventually you go on to acceptance and now I think I'm in that stage of acceptance where I know that everything is dire right every species really at this point is facing a lot of hardship so that urge to be faster or do it better or get it done now I think is I don't know always on my mind but I'm at a point in time where all I know I can do is the best I can and the best I can is following science following the species that may need our help and really just being an advocate for really preserving our natural land and being good stewards of it. You know, like that's really all we could do. As fast as I want to write our code and statistical modeling on jackrabbits specifically or methodology, that would be great, you know, but at the same time, whenever it does happen, whatever rate it's at, just trying to do something to help, I think whether whatever species it was, if it was jackrabbits or squirrels or anything really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is a question that maybe a lot of us who are in conservation mm -hmm. biology face. Um, I remember being an undergrad and thinking I was gonna save the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's confronting what, you know, once you learn that actually you're not gonna be able to save the world and that you get frustrated that you know, you're not able to do it fast enough and that all around you things are happening and it almost seems to always get worse. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you're like, well, I can be on the side that is still trying to fight and help or I can be on the side that just decides to be standing still and doing nothing and I wanna be part of the fight. I wanna be part of that group of people who are really trying to make a difference and to make it better. And I think like, again, with the tools that you have at your disposal, how can you make that happen? 
and yeah we think of a whole variety of different ways and I think like one of the other things that we haven't mentioned is what you guys are doing with outreach and how it makes a big difference just to bring awareness to the general public that their own actions also help us everybody can help in their own way and the more of us that do it then the more effective we become was our conversation with Boise State University graduate student Leticia Camacho and Boise State University assistant professor Dr. Jen Cruz. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast and the organization that produces it, you can head over to birdsofpreyncapartnership.org or check out Birds of Prey NCA Partnership on Facebook. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wildlands Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Birds of Prey NCA Partnership President Steve Olsip. Our theme song is by Like a Rocket, and additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website for a full list of credits. <laughs>